Hello, and thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church of DeRitter, Louisiana, recorded at our 10 o'clock service on Sunday, November 11th, 2018. John 135-49. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated and added. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, John decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you, Nathanael replied. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. I must tell you, as, uh, as we've gone through our disciples' path journey on Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, and we're looking at what it means to be a disciple in the United Methodist tradition. Some of the more astute of you have observed that our fifth vow of membership to support our church with our witness hasn't always been one of our vows. In fact, the vow to support our church with our witness doesn't even go back 20 years as an official vow. And I was asked, well, why is that? Why is it that we had to add a vow when the first four seemed to be doing us just fine? Well, the, to use a phrase, the inconvenient truth is we forget sometimes that how we lead our lives speaks volumes about how the ministry of God through our church has made us who we are or has not. And by this vow of witness, which we have all affirmed at some point, or most all of us have affirmed through a renewal service, and I know we've done it each of the last three years I've been here, through baptisms and through other uh, through other special services. And what that does is it reminds us that how we interact on a Sunday morning with each other is easy when it comes to bearing witness. But do we realize that we are supporting, the, we are making a statement about the cause of Christ and the ministries of our church 
by how we interact with the people at the gas station, the people at the grocery store, the people that we work with, the people in our families, how we get on the phone and talk about each other. Did I say that? Um, other things. How every breath that we draw and every word that we say ties directly into how we see God and how we see God's grace at work in our lives. But supporting a church with our witness isn't just about how we treat each other, but it's about telling a story. One of the great uh, illustrations we saw in this week's uh, study in our small groups is a lawyer who reminded us that a witness is not there to try to persuade anybody. <clears throat> a witness in a trial is not there <clears throat> to do anything other than to talk about what they have seen, what they have experienced, what is their expertise in this area. <clears throat> and I think sometimes one of the reasons we get in trouble and we shy away from this is we have a different understanding. of what it means to be a witness. We don't have to persuade anyone <clears throat> to believe in God. We don't have to persuade anyone <clears throat> to accept God's grace in Jesus. <clears throat> but what we do have to do is tell a story. We have to tell a story about a God who out of nothing made everything, spoke everything into existence. We have a story to tell about a God who created everything, including man and woman, and called it good. And then on the seventh day, God rested after he made everything, and he called it good. We have a story to tell about how humanity took this perfect gift from God and blew it up because humanity figured they were smarter than God. Anybody in here having any experience disobeying God when you know better? I mean, what's the one thing that a parent tells a child, you knew better? Any of y'all ever said that to a kid? Any of y'all? You knew better. All right, now I want to invite you to play a little mind game here. Put yourself in that position and God speaking to you like you do a child. Not so funny anymore, is it? You knew better. And yet humanity decided to go ahead and eat of that apple and it had far-reaching implications. You ever done something you shouldn't do and it had implications you could not imagine? Well, welcome to Genesis 3, y'all. So we tell a story about that and then we also tell a story about how God still loved us so much that He never gave up on us. You ever just bailed on someone 
Imagine if God had bailed on us like we bail on each other. And finally, God had enough and said, all right, I can't get your attention these ways. I'm going to send my son. And my son is going to give his life to make things right. Now, outside the occasional, in a moment of frustration, you've had the idea of sacrificing your own child. Could you imagine watching your kid die even though they did nothing wrong? And they did it for a bunch of people who would say, we really just don't care. All right? And then what do we do? We tell a story about a God who after that, after his son died and rose again, still gives chance after chance, gave us the gift of each other to encourage each other. And then a God who will at the end come again in glory and everything will be set to right and the hell of this world, the sin of this world, the disgrace of this world will be set aside and a new heaven and a new earth will come. That's the story we tell through our witness. It's not about trying to convince someone of something. Because it is the Holy Spirit that does the work of conversion. How many times have we been told we don't talk politics or religion in polite company? Well, if we don't talk about our faith, then who in the world is going to do it? Think about that. If we don't share the story of faith, who are we expecting to do it? As a great church council chair said once, if we're not the ones inviting people to the story, then who in the world is going to do it? But you see in this passage that Samantha and Samantha Bethsaida trips everybody up, not a problem. But in this brief interaction from John's Gospel, we catch a few things about this vow of witness. A disciple, as you notice, a disciple, and we've titled this, A Disciple Tells God's Story. And you see in this passage that Jesus turned and saw them following. He said to them, what are you looking for? What is it that you're looking for? The grammar Nazi in me wants to strangle the translators for ending it with a preposition, but that's a different story. But in that very exchange from Jesus, we see that a disciple's witness is often tied to that for which they are looking. A disciple's witness is often tied to that for which they are looking. And one of the reasons we struggle with being witnesses for God and being witnesses for our churches is we set an impossible standard as to for what are people looking. We live in a consumer-oriented culture where instead of churches gathering and celebrating the gifts that have got in them, we 
get into the sin of envy we or the sin of pride. We look at churches and go, well, thank God we're a lot better than them. Or we look at other churches and go, why can't we have what they have? We're totally blowing out of the water the idea that every church has different gifts. And if you just want to chase being like another church, then why would you have another one? Are we looking for in our church and in our God? Are we looking for what we want? Are we looking for what God is graciously providing through the assembled body of believers? Are we caught up in looking for our desires? Are we looking for God's grace? Are we looking for a God who saves us? Or are we looking for an organization that does what we want? A disciple's witness, the way we live our lives, the story we tell, is often tied to that for which we are looking. The question we must ask ourselves is, for what are we looking this morning? Are we looking for our own self-interests? Are we looking for God and His grace and His mercy? Understanding that just as a child knows better, we know better from God. For what is it that we are looking? That's what Jesus asked. For what are you looking? But He goes on. And He says to them, Jesus says, come and see. And then listen closely. They came and they saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother said to him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. A disciple's witness proclaims what they have seen. A disciple's witness proclaims what they have seen. Have we truly seen God's grace, peace, mercy, and love at work in our lives? I submit to you that if we haven't, it's because we forgot point number one. We have to ask ourselves, for what are we looking? You see, up until the time Jesus came, the faithful were looking for a Messiah, for a deliverer. They were looking for one who would free them from the bondage of sin and oppression, the one that would make everything right. They were looking for the Messiah, and they found him. If we are testifying to that for which we are looking, we must ask ourselves, what is it that we are seeing? Do we see ourselves as those who have been graciously given God's grace and mercy? Do we look at ourselves as sinners in need of mercy and as people of faith who are called to give that mercy and grace to others? Or are we stuck on ourselves? 
Do we freely receive the gift of grace, mercy, and forgiveness? Or do we hold on to our anger and bitterness? Do we hold on to our rage? Do we say to people that have done us wrong, I am done with you and there's no hope for you? Now, I am not saying to stay in an abusive relationship. But I am saying let us be free from the bondage of sin. Let us be free from the bondage of hatred. Let us be free from the sin of being negative. And let us be people of joy. Let us be people who have seen God's grace. As I've told you before, this, this cross is not about the brass. It could be made out of twigs. And it's just as important. And it's just as beautiful. Because the cross is not about how it looks. It is about the way of life that it represents. No disrespect. I love a beautiful cross. What are we looking for? The beauty of an object? Or are we looking for the beauty of salvation? That's what they did. They went. They stayed with Jesus. And then they went and told others. As we stay with Jesus, what are we doing as we see others? Are we telling them the story of grace and redemption and salvation? But then the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, found Philip, and said to him, follow me. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found out about whom Moses and the law of the prophets wrote, Jesus son of Joseph from Nazareth. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. A disciple's witness not only proclaims what they have seen, a disciple's witness invites others to experience God's grace. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, who is it that God is calling you to find and to tell the story of your encounter with Jesus. Who is it that God is calling you to find and tell the story of salvation? Who is it? Who is it? I think I just asked you an impossible question. Because it's not just about who is it that God is calling us to go tell the story to? But it is the reality of knowing there's no one with whom we interact that we are not called to tell the story of Jesus' grace, mercy, and love. Sometimes we do it directly, but all the time we do it indirectly. And there's not a one of us in this room that is measured up to it 100% of the time. And there's not a one of us in the room that would be here without God's grace. And there's not 100 there's not one of us in the room who doesn't have room to grow when it comes to extending grace, mercy, and love, especially to those who have really made us mad or who have really hurt us. But do we understand that holding on to anger and bitterness and rage is also an invitation? We can't fool people. We cannot fool people. They know where our heart is. Do we live in that such a way? And finally, the most depressing thing I've ever heard 
from a non-church member. And it's happened in more than one place. I've met somebody in town who will say, Preacher, I'd love to come to your church. I love you. But they wouldn't accept me. Because I'm not their kind of people. Think about that for a minute. I'm not their kind of people. How we live our life as a witness to all about how welcome they are to God's grace. Because what did Nathaniel say when Philip came to him? Nathaniel said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is there a class of people that you can think of right now that you think don't belong here? Be honest with yourselves. Is there a class of person that you think needs to have some improvement before you would welcome them into this house? Is there the way someone dresses or the way someone has personal hygiene? Is there someone whom you would look, your nose, look down your nose upon if they walk through that door because you don't think they belong here? Well, what did Philip say? Come and see. A disciple's witness understands God's love is for all, period. A disciple's witness understands that God's love is for all, period. A, God, a disciple understands that God's love is for all, period. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The challenge you and I face this morning as we encounter that passage is, who is it that we think, or who is it that we have either put a mental or emotional box around and said there's no way they have a place in this church? As my friend Doug Ezel says, one of the afflictions of a lot of our mainline traditions is we have allowed, we allowed ourselves to become the boss's church. We allowed ourselves to become the upper crust church. We allowed ourselves to become the places where you had to be a certain way, you had to look a certain way, and you had to conduct yourself a certain way to be welcome there. And these churches have been facing a lot of issues as society changes. I think more than I think what's truly scary for us all is more often than we want to admit, our reaction is just like Nathaniel's. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? How many people have missed Jesus? How many people then and how many people now miss who Jesus is because they have their preconceived notions about how Christ is to operate? All we have is a story to tell. All we have is a story to tell. And I want to close with this remembering that we have a story to tell because today is Armistice Day, Veterans Day. And in a diary from a guy named Robert J. Casey, who was a journalist in Chicago and joined the Army and commanded Battery C of the 124th Field Artillery Regiment, 
And he wrote about this looking back on November 11th, 1918. He said, with all is a feeling that it can't be true. For months we have slept under the guns. For months the smash of the 75, the boom of the 155, the trembling roar of Heine's bursting GI cans have been a part of our lives. We cannot comprehend the stillness. A doughboy at the gate is wiping his eyes with his sleeve. His mud-caked rifle caught up under his other arm. No one has noticed him. We would all feel like doing the same thing if we felt like doing anything at all. I am going back to sleep. Mr. Casey says it well. With all is a feeling that it can't be true. For months we have slept under the guns. Brothers and sisters, there is a world out there. There are people you know within walking distance of this room who are living through the war of sin and death and anger and mercy and rage, and they are so used to it that the idea of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, they just can't believe it. We have a mission to tell the story of God's grace. And when we make a vow to support our church with our witness, it is a commitment made to support this church because our church's business is to tell the story and to invite people to experience God's grace, mercy, and love. Just as the soldier who writes about cannot imagine the stillness. What did he say? We cannot comprehend the stillness. There is a world that cannot comprehend the peace that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, if our faith means anything at all, we must be people who tell the story. We must be people who bear witness to God's work and all of creation because a disciple tells God's story. When he gathered on this date in 1921 to dedicate the tomb of the unknown soldier, President Harding offered these words that I think we would do well to remember. There must be, there shall be, the commanding voice of a conscious civilization against armed warfare. As we return this poor clay to its mother soil, garlanded by love and covered with the decorations that only nations can bestow, I can sense the prayers of our people, of all peoples, that this Armistice Day shall mark the beginning of a new and lasting era of peace on earth, goodwill among men. May it be so, brothers and sisters. And may our prayer be, as we see it laid out in our worship guide, from self-righteousness that will not compromise, and from selfishness that it gains by the oppression of others. From the lust for money or power that drives to kill. From placing too much trust in the weapons of war and not enough in the death and resurrection of Christ. From looking at every person, no matter where they are from or whatever they believe, first as anything but one you created in love. 
from suspicions and fears that stand in the way of reconciliation. From words and deeds that encourage discord, prejudice, and hatred. From everything that prevents us from fulfilling your promise of peace. Let us pray. One hundred years ago, O Lord, a weary world laid down their weapons to mark the end of what was then known as the war to end all wars. One hundred years later, we confess to you that dream, that vision that has its roots in your scriptures is nowhere close to coming to fruition. We confess to you, Savior, that through our acts or lack thereof, we are responsible for some of the conflict that pits one against another. Our prayer this morning, Almighty God, is that 100 years from now, your faithful may gather for worship in a world without war, because we, your people, realize and live out the reality that you fought and won the war that should have ended all war, the war against sin and death, through the love you've shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray this prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church in Derrida, Louisiana. You can find out more about us at fumcderrida.org. Thank you and have a great day.